It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a public affair. It's Wednesday, March 22nd. That means you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. And I want to remind you, you are listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. We are continuing our really important conversations about what is on the April 4th ballot. Election day is less than two weeks away, uh, coming up on Tuesday, April 4th. And we've been talking with so many of the candidates. And last week, we talked a little bit about the constitutional referendums uh on the ballot and we're going to talk a little bit more about that today and the other referendum yes that means there are three referendum on the statewide ballot uh on april 4th so for the first half of the show we're going to talk about um the two constitutional amendments to the wisconsin constitution regarding cash bail and conditions of release And then for the second half of the show, we're going to talk about one other referendum, which is on the April 4th ballot, that is a non-binding advisory referendum on welfare reform. And we're going to talk about what the heck that means. Two constitutional amendments, one non-binding, why, how, what, all of these great questions. We're going to hopefully get to all of that today. So we're so glad that you are tuning in to join us. So let's get started again. For the first half of the show, we're going to talk about Two of the constitutional amendments, there's only two, I made it sound like there are many, there are two constitutional amendments on the April 4th ballot. Joining us today to talk about them, uh, we have Dustin Brown, he is the senior staff attorney with the State Democracy Research Initiative at UW Law School. Hello, Dustin. Hello. How are you doing? I'm so glad you can join us today. I'm thrilled to be here. It's wonderful to have you. So, okay. Let's just sort of start. I know we're going to talk a lot about the history and how we got here, but I want to make sure we talk about, we cover at the start, what it is we're talking about. What is on the April 4th ballot? Um, So on the April 4th ballot, there are two separate questions for the voters. Um, And those two questions both pertain to an amendment to the Wisconsin Constitution that concerns um, bail and non-monetary conditions for release. And the gist of the amendment is that it would allow judges to impose bail and to set non-monetary conditions for release in more situations than is currently allowed. Um, And to to really understand what's going on here, um, you have to start off with the language that already appears in the Wisconsin Constitution. Um, So right now, the Wisconsin Constitution, it already sets standards for pretrial release. They appear in Article 1, Section 8, Subsection 2. And this provision, it talks, there's kind of two terms we need to be familiar with. One is conditions of release, and the other one is monetary conditions of release. Monetary conditions of release, that's what everybody knows as bail. It's it's the payment of money to be released um, from jail pretrial. Conditions of release, that basically refers to... uh, Everything else, things like you know, supervision and monitoring. There could be you know, curfew, travel restrictions, weapons restrictions. Those are all different conditions that can be imposed on a criminal defendant uh, to be released uh, from, from detention before trial. And the proposed amendment, it would allow judges to impose conditions of release in more circumstances. And the standards are different for, you know, non-monetary conditions versus bail. So the first question on the ballot concerns non-monetary conditions of release. Right now, the current constitutional language, it allows a judge to impose reasonable conditions on pretrial release for three purposes. And one of those purposes is to protect the community from serious bodily harm. Again, that's the existing language in the Constitution. This amendment would change that language by cutting the word bodily. 
So instead of it being serious bodily harm, it would be serious harm. So, um, so, so that means that, you know, in it, it, for the purpose of protecting the community from any serious harm, that's a factor that, that a judge can consider when imposing these non-monetary conditions of release, everything but bail. So again, that's the first question. Okay. Uh, the second question would change the standard for bail itself. And this is the one that's, I think, generated a lot more publicity. Right now, the language in the state constitution, it allows bail to be set only as, quote, necessary to assure appearance in court. Otherwise, you know, in, in essence, to deal with flight risks and to ensure that somebody shows up for their court appearances. And again, that's the only factor that a judge can consider right now under the existing constitutional language when setting bail. With the amendment, that would expand, greatly expand the factors that a judge can consider when deciding to set bail. And the judge can consider a lot more factors when setting bail for defendants who are accused of violent crime. So a judge could consider protecting the community from serious harm. The judge can consider a defendant's prior convictions for violent crime. The judge consider um, preventing intimidation of witnesses. All of those are factors that a judge can weigh in deciding you know, what level to set bail at uh, for somebody before trial. So under the Constitution right now, those last factors that you talked about, the seriousness of the charge, um, prior criminal history. Those are factors a judge can consider in non-monetary um, issues. Is that correct? Under the Constitution right now? Yes, exactly. Under the Constitution right now, there are more things that a judge can consider when setting non-monetary conditions of release rather than bail. So for non-monetary conditions of release, the judge right now under the existing Constitution can consider both protecting from um, serious bodily harm and also to secure the defendant's appearance in court and to prevent witness intimidation. So, so some of those additional factors that this amendment would add for bail those are already factors under the Constitution for the non-monetary conditions of release. Gotcha. So, and I want to make sure, um, one more question, I want to make sure we all know what we're talking about. Again, we're t- so we're talking about these rules would apply to defendants charged with a crime pre-trial. That means that they haven't taken a plea or they haven't been convicted or the jury, wh- whatever that whole process is, this is before the criminal uh process takes place yes exactly this is early in the process you know um but before there's been a final adjudication of guilt so for for people who are um presumed innocent at this moment we're talking about people presumed innocence but charged with crimes yes exactly okay so first of all dustin thank you for breaking all this down (laughs) and i i maybe we're going to be a little counterintuitive but i i want Thank you for starting with that. I want to put that aside for a moment and just sort of talk about how the heck did we even get there, get here? Because those words are confusing. Those words are heady. These are really complex issues that have, right? It took it took us multiple mi- took took us multiple minutes to articulate what the issues are. We haven't even Completely. broken down what we think of them yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so. How did we get to the place where we are making these sort of detailed, heady decisions regarding our state constitution? Right. Well, well, that's because the state constitution puts the power of amending the constitution in in the people. Um, so so to, to kind of you know take a step back and explain the process for amending the yes. constitution. It's something that starts with the legislature, um, and it can only start with the legislature. The people of Wisconsin can't independently propose amendments to the Constitution. Um, but after starting with the legislature, it ends with the people. And the, the, the legislative process spans two sessions of the legislature. In one session of the legislature, um, both uh, houses of the legislature have to approve by majority vote the language of a proposed amendment to the Constitution. And that has to happen within a certain period of time before kind of the the election um, of the next legislature. Then the next legislative session, and it has to be the next consecutive session, the legislature again has to take up the same exact amendment, 
and the legislature has to approve, again by a majority vote, the language that's been proposed for the Constitution, the same exact language. But with this second vote, the legislature also incorporates or decides on what language would then be presented to the people as a ballot question. Mm. Because the third and final step of the process is that that the people get to vote, up or down vote, uh, by a majority, um, whether or not to amend the Constitution. But what the people see on the ballot, it's not actually the language in the Constitution. So the amendment itself is not what they're going to see. Instead, the, the, the legislature articulates it as a specific ballot question, saying to the people, do you want to amend the Constitution to achieve this result? Um, because, in, in, and that makes sense, because if you were simply to just list the language of the Constitution, I mean, that would essentially be like a red line. You would see things crossed out, you would see things added. Um, so the idea behind posing it as a question is to you know, give people sort of an explanation of what they're being asked to do. And although the actual language of the amendment doesn't appear on the ballot, um, there, there are notices um, that are posted. People can, can find it online, and you could also find it at your polling place um, that provide the actual language of the amendment um, and also provide a, a short explanation as to, to what all of this means. So a lot of what I just walked people through is what they would see if they picked up you know, that, um, those pages uh, at their polling place. It seems a little tricky. It doesn't have to be. I, I appreciate that you're articulating that sometimes a question is preferred over sort of the dry legalese phrasing of a amendment, of the actual amendment, but then it also is ripe for confusion. It, it, it is. I think that's that's also inherent in in lawmaking. Um, and, and that's one of the big <laughs> challenges confusing. of of direct democracy um, with with direct democracy. When the people are being asked to vote on something, whether, you know, it's a constitutional amendment like we have um, in Wisconsin or, you know, there, there are other states where there are, you know, different types of, of direct democracy. But but in all of those those circumstances, the people are ultimately deciding on what the law is going to be. And and that's difficult. It's it's difficult for yeah. you know members of the legislature to understand what exactly they're voting on and to educate themselves. And so to take all of this information and to capture um, the changes that are being proposed in something that can fit on a ballot, um, that's difficult. It's tricky. Um, and, yeah. and so, so yeah, so, so, so and, and, and right now, you know, I, I have no specific opinion on how uh, effective a job the legislature did in translating this amendment into a ballot question. Um, there are people who will, will criticize it. Um, and there are people who will say, you know, they, they, they did a good job, but, but that is an inherent difficulty in the process. In the it's process. something that, that, that's very challenging to do. Can you sort of talk to us big picture about the Wisconsin state constitution, how it, it differs? Remind us, are, are there 50 state constitutions? Does every, is there a state maybe that doesn't have a constitution? Does every state have their constitution? How, do, how does it differ from amendments mm -hmm. to, right? You think about the federal constitution. I remember learning it in college. I remember <laughs> studying it in law school. I don't really, I didn't go to law school in Wisconsin. I went to law school in Minnesota. People can boo me later about that. Mm -hmm. But, yes. um, I don't remember studying the Minnesota Constitution at all in my law school. So it, help us understand this. No, no, absolutely. And that's and, and that's common. Actually, you know, I think that there's there's one survey from several years back that found that fewer than half of Americans even knew that their state had its own constitution. Mm -hmm. And and that's common the, in, in our system of government. The federal system gets a lot more attention. But the vast amount of lawmaking in the country happens in the states. Um, each state has its own constitution, and um, and it's important for people to understand uh, stand this and have a, a basic knowledge of their state constitution. In large part, because the the people, the voters, are the ones who ultimately amend the constitution. Right. Um, so so it's kind of ironic that 
you know, whereas state constitution are ones where the people themselves are voting, people tend to know a lot less about their state constitution than they do about the federal constitution. Well, but, but, but in a nutshell, so for each state, its constitution, it's a supreme law of the state, just as the U.S. Constitution um, is the supreme law of the nation. Each state does does have its own. Um, and, and state constitutions are similar to the U.S. Constitution in certain respects. Um, you know, in, in one sense, um, they, they, um, one thing that state constitutions do is they establish the structure of state government, the branches of government, their, their powers, how they interact just like the federal constitution does. Um, state constitutions also set out fundamental rights. Um, indeed, most state constitutions open with a declaration of rights um, comparable to the, uh, you know, the US constitution, which um, has a bill of rights with the first 10 amendments. But in other respects, state constitutions are very different from their federal counterpart. Um, and there are three um, distinctions that I think it would be helpful to highlight. Um, first, state constitutions are, are much easier to amend than the federal constitution. Mm -hmm. um, second, the provisions of state constitutions, they can be a lot more detailed. People are familiar with the state, the, the federal constitution being written in this kind of broad sweeping language. Right. The, the, the level of detail that appears in state constitutions, it can be more statutory in nature. You know, statutes being the laws that the, that the legislature passes. Um, and and, and the level of detail you can find in the Constitution might be something comparable to what you see, um, you know, just in uh, in traditional laws. Um, and, and this bail amendment is kind of one example, like going into this detail um, about bail and the standards for bail. Um, you know, th that's something that, that, that you wouldn't see in the federal Constitution, but it is common to see something like that in state constitutions. Gotcha. And finally, finally, the last distinction, state constitutions are a lot longer than the mm, federal Constitution. Yeah. And, and that's How kind of a How many amendments do we have here in Wisconsin? Gosh. So, and it's funny, in Wisconsin, we don't, the amendments are um, incorporated into the body of the document. So, uh. for example, this amendment, so it's not like a list of amendments that goes at the end of the Constitution like you have with the federal Constitution. And, and the amendments aren't numbered like they are for the federal Constitution. So, for this um, amendment, um, these, these two ballot questions which, which in effect, you know, come together to really be one amendment of one provision of the Constitution. They're really creating a red line of Article One, Section Eight, Subsection Two of the Constitution. So, if this were adopted, and you would open up the state constitution, you wouldn't see, you know, Amendment Number whatever at the end. You would just open it up to Article One, Section Eight, Subsection Two, and the language would simply be different to reflect the change that was made um, at this election. And then, um, you know, at the end, if it's an annotated version of, of the Constitution, um, there will be kind of a little listing of the different amendments that were adopted that that affected the content gotcha. of it. Um, but, um, but, but to go back to your earlier question, the number of amendments, I think it's um, 146 amendments have been adopted there's a, the, the numbering can be a little wonky because there there are a couple of amendments where where it was challenged and so you know people had ultimately voted for it but it wasn't incorporated into the constitution but but around 146 that's that's a lot that's a lot of amendments and that... it, it is a lot and, and and actually you know so wisconsin is 175 years old so 146 amendments have been adopted in that time and nearly 200 proposed amendments have gone to the voters. So that means, you know, on average, it's about, you know, more than one, you know, a, a one point something amendment, you know, each each year would have been put before the voters. Um, th that pace um, has slowed somewhat in recent years. I think I counted um, there have been eight amendments that have gone before the voters um, in the last two decades. And um seven of them have passed. So, hmm. you know, there, there's a high rate of the passage of oh, amendments. The success. But, but in general, it's about three and four amendments. If you look at just the proportion of okay. 146 amendments adopted, about 200 proposed, proposed. it's about, you know, 75% over time have been adopted when they are proposed to the voters. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, around 75%. That's a, and that's a pretty high success rate. So, yes. Dustin, let's get back in our, in our, final um, conversation here with you to the substance now 
of yep. the proposed amendments. I want to break them down a little bit, if we can, about mm-hmm. the language of what they do. Let's go to the um, the non-bail language, the mm-hmm. non-monetary pretrial conditions, and the deletion of the word bodily before the mm-hmm. word harm. So it right. currently says these conditions can consider bodily harm, and now mm-hmm. judges should just hit or consider serious harm or what is it and what does that mean if we know right um and 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 we don't know um, because it could because if you were if you were to look at it it effectively a red line of the existing constitutional language and then what it would look like if this amendment were adopted there are actually two changes that are encompassed in that first ballot question the first is you know you take that language serious bodily harm um, bodily would be eliminated, um, so it would just be serious harm. And then um, secondly, there would be the addition of as defined by the legislature by law. So it would ultimately read, all persons before conviction shall be eligible for release under reasonable conditions designed to assure their appearance in court, protect members of the community from serious harm as defined by the legislature by law, or prevent the intimidation of witnesses. Okay. So that's kind of what what the the Constitution would say in that provision. So and serious harm it, could change. It could. I mean, it makes me think of right. It went from serious bodily harm to serious harm. That could mean mm-hmm. bodily harm. That could be emotional harm. Could that be economic harm? Yes. It yes. could be it's, property so, so, damage. So it, Exactly. So, 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 so it eliminates bodily. So any kind of serious harm and importantly, it says as defined by the legislature by law. So that specifies that it's the duty of the legislature to come in here and fill those details because otherwise, if it didn't say that a court construing this, you know, if the Wisconsin Supreme Court were were to construe this, then, then the Wisconsin Supreme Court would um, presumably be trying to determine, well, Mm -hmm. what does serious harm mean? But this kind of specifies um, that it would be serious harm as defined by the legislature by law. And so that's something that the legislature is working on right now. Right now, there's there's a, a bill that's been proposed that would fill in both that definition of serious harm and there's another term um, in the, the bail provision, violent crime, because the, the expanded factors to be considered um, when imposing bail, that's only for a person accused of violent crime. And that, too, needs to be defined by the legislature. What violent crime um, is. So- and, 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 and so, yeah, so voters will not know, um, you know, how exactly those terms will be defined. There is some flexibility there. So what what sort of is the pros and cons that you're hearing regarding this? Because I could I it it seems that these should be factors that judges should be considered. So I can see the pro and I can also see the con, which is we don't even know specifically what we're talking about yet. Um, Right. And I and I think that's that's one of the criticisms of the amendment as it exists now, the fact that it, you know, leaves these terms to be defined so voters don't know what exactly they're voting on. Um, on, on the other hand, anytime, whether, you know, it's a provision of the Constitution, a statute, um, you know, there are always questions in interpreting interpretation. Law mm-hmm. of, of, of understanding what does that mean. So sometimes, you know, if this were to appear in a statute, sometimes there are statutorily defined terms sometimes there aren't. Um, and since so, so anytime, you know, any laws adopted, um, there will inevitably be some ambiguity or some question as to what some of those terms mean. Here, it's just more explicit because the amendment very clearly says, um, you know, as defined by the legislature by law, and those definitions don't exist yet. They They've don't been exist proposed, yet. They've been proposed, but we don't know, you know, even if, if, even if that legislation passes the legislature we don't know if the governor would would sign it Mm, interesting and then in our final moment here with you justin let's talk about the proposed changes to the cash bail conversation what are the pros and cons that you're hearing uh or, or maybe not the pros and cons people in support people in opposition to changing specifically consideration when it comes to how much money someone is assessed before they can be released from jail. 
Yes, um, I think I, th I think people on both sides of the debate do agree on one thing: that if a person is in fact a danger to the community, a person should not be released pre-trial. But but the real source of the disagreement is whether bail is the correct tool um, to protect the community. The argument in favor says, um, look, the existing standard is too restrictive. It doesn't allow a judge to consider the community's safety when setting bail. Um, and the amendment you know, allows judges to weigh public safety and other factors. Um, but the argument against says bail just isn't the answer for protecting public safety because it ties liberty to wealth. You know, mm -hmm. there could be somebody who can pay a high bail. And even if that person's a risk to danger to the community, that person could still be released. There could be a person who's not much of a danger to the community and faces only a relatively low bail. But if that person can't pay it, then that person is stuck in jail. So so the alternative approach, which uh, some some Democrats in the legislature um, are proposing now, is to adopt more of a, um, a risk assessment model that is not tied to money. Um, and so and, and that's something that, that wouldn't require a constitutional amendment because it doesn't involve changing the bail standard that already exists in the Constitution. This would be something separate from bail. And it, it would essentially say, you know, for, for any individual separately decide, you know, to, to what extent is this person a risk to the community? If the person is, in fact, a risk, you know, set the conditions for release or, you know, not allow release at all um, based on that risk to the community. But if the person isn't a risk in the community to the community, then then they should be released. And that I mean, that's what's really interesting about this conversation is are we going to have your individual wealth be tied to whether you can get out of jail or not, regardless of what you're charged with, right? I mean, I happen to be a homeowner, right? Of course, the bank owns quite a portion of my home, but I own a home. I, you know, I'm making car payments and I own I own the wedding ring on my finger, right? If I was charged with serious crimes and f found to be a danger to society, but was able to post a $200,000 bail, which I would do because there's so many benefits to not being in jail while you're going through a criminal trial. I'm not right. That's the argument is how does that make us safer or not? Because I have access to all of those things. Yes, exactly. Bail, um, you know, setting uh, a, a specific dollar amount is not a good proxy for determining um, public safety. So that that counter argument against this amendment is just remove bail from the equation. You don't need to actually change the constitutional standard for bail. You simply need a, a separate approach um, to determining when and under what circumstances somebody is released pretrial. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today, Dustin, and really breaking all of this down. It is complicated. This is so incredibly helpful. Um, uh so thank you. It's uh, it's it's been a pleasure to to speak with you, and I always appreciate interest in uh, the Wisconsin State Constitution. We we appreciate that you're a resource that knows about the uh, Wisconsin State Constitution. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Dustin. It's really great to talk to you. Thank you. That again was Dustin Brown, the senior staff attorney with the State Democracy Research Initiative at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Thank you, Dustin, and. I want to remind everyone you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We would love to hear from you. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. We have Jade and Sholly and Jay all in the studio ready to take your call. Um, they can patch you through them into the, and uh, you can join us here on uh Online, no, that's not true. On the air live is what we are. You can join us live on the air, or you can pass on a question uh, to me if you don't want to join uh, on the air live. Whatever works for you, we'd love to hear from you at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. And now for the second half of the show, we're going to talk about another referendum that is on the April 4th ballot. The first two that we just talked about were a uh, referendum that would amend the Wisconsin state constitution. The next one 
to switch it up is just an advisory referendum. We're going to try and understand why this referendum exists, what it's trying to get at, all of those things. It's an advisory referendum regarding the welfare system here in Wisconsin. And we have two guests joining us for the second half of the show. We have um, David Pate Jr. He's an associate professor and chair at the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare at UW-Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Hello, Professor Pate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's wonderful to have you. And then we also have Ruth Conniff joining us. She's the editor-in-chief of Wisconsin Examiner. Hello, Ruth. Oh, you're muted, Ruth. Let's hear you one more time. Oh, sorry about that. There Hi. we go. <laughs> Hello. We're so glad you can join us. Thanks, Ruth. Um, yeah. Always good to have you, uh, your voice on these things. So I want to start off just by making it clear. What is this referendum? It says, I'm going to read it. Shall able-bodied, childless adults be required to look for work in order to receive taxpayer-funded welfare benefits. Ruth, do you want to sort of kick us off of like, why why is this non-binding advisory referendum before us? So I think the context that's really important for people to understand about this referendum is that like the other two referenda that you were just discussing, the constitutional amendments on crime, these are Republican proposals. They were pushed through on an entirely party line vote by Republicans in our state legislature. And part of the backdrop to them is an effort to get Republican voters to the polls on April 4th to vote for the Republican supported Supreme Court candidate, Daniel Kelly. And the dwelling on crime and dwelling on the idea that people who receive public benefits are lazy and shiftless and need to be made to work is an important Republican campaign message across the United States right now. So these three, these three amendments are the, these ballot amendments are on the ballot on April 4th, because there's a real strong desire to get conservatives to the polls who are very afraid that there's going to be crime and believe that people who have not been convicted need to be kept behind bars that judges need wide latitude to keep them behind bars, hmm. even though they haven't been convicted of a crime, and who believe that people should work for their welfare, quote unquote, welfare benefits. Well, what does that mean? Uh, in Wisconsin, it's already required that people work in the W-2 program, uh, which is, it's welfare to work. I mean, that's why it's called W-2. Right. And uh, food share already also has a work requirement thanks to Republicans in the legislature and Scott Walker. So people are working for food and they're working f under the workfare program. The only uh, quote unquote welfare program that's left is Medicaid. And it is not, it's it's against federal rules for people to be required to work for their health care. Okay. So the Wisconsin Republicans would like people, for example, cancer patients who don't have a lot of money to be forced to work in order to get chemotherapy, but it is currently illegal under federal law. So. If this advisory referendum passes and the people of Wisconsin say, absolutely, not only should people work for food, not only should they work under the workfare program that we have, the few remaining people who qualify, they really should work in order to get health care, you know, even if they're very, very ill. In the future, under a Republican administration, if Tony Evers loses and there's a Republican governor and there's still a Republican-dominated legislature, perhaps we could we could get to that. But, okay. but and if you're a Republican president as well, because under federal rules currently, it can't be done. Okay. So that's the advisory referendum. It's not going to result in any actual policy changes right now because those would be illegal federally. <laughs> I appreciate you breaking that down, Ruth, so we can sort of understand the context of how this got to our ballot that will be, again, on every ballot in the state of Wisconsin on April 4th. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to understand the political motivation yeah. of these initiatives because it's not just, you know, the, the language sounds, it, the, the welfare one sounds mean-spirited, I think, on the face of it. The other two sound sort of bland and possibly okay, like community safety should be considered if, you know, judges are, are making decisions about keeping people in jail. You, you got to understand, these are very political moves to amend our Constitution. And they come out of the Waukesha Christmas parade tragedy and sort of Republicans' efforts to politicize Someone that around. and gin up yeah. fear and outrage. 
So well, that's that's what these that's what these initiatives are about. Okay. Thank you, Ruth. That's helpful to have that sort of intro. And then I want to talk with Professor Pete. Um, Professor Pete, you are someone that has studied and really understands the breakdown of the programs that we have here in Wisconsin regarding welfare and benefits. Can you sort of break down what is the situation right now, Put, putting this amendment aside? Yeah, well, I, I think Ruth did a fabulous job of explaining where we are currently. All of our programs are work-related, except for Medicaid. Um, and when we talk about able-bodied, childless adults, we're talking about men, primarily men. Um, and it's also, also when we talk about primarily men who are seen as childless adults, we also have to acknowledge that this is this appears to be a race-neutral uh, proposal or advisor. But a lot of a lot of undertone about race is here. When we talk about welfare, yes. um, in, in the 1980s, it was very well it was very well orchestrated. The welfare queen those who were not working, the whole idea that it was a race-related topic, the fact that primarily blacks and brown people were using this benefit. Uh, when when you look at the country of America, primarily whites were using the benefit. In fact, it was used by a lot of people. Disproportionately, blacks were involved, but it was primarily a white benefit. But people tend to think when they hear welfare that we're talking about lazy people and we're talking about people whom are not... Um, taking care of their children. And also you can't have this benefit, you can't have any benefit in America unless you have children. Medicaid you can get, but Wisconsin was a state before uh, Governor Evers where we didn't have expanded Medicaid. So single adult men, there was a small number of them who could get it. Um, so again, some of this, when I first saw this advisement, it, it, I, immediately I went, my antennas went up to say, this is very race related. Um, because welfare is very, uh, very much a coded word for um, black and brown people who are not working. And the idea that uh, we have any entitlements, the only one we have is Medicaid, and as Ruth explained, it's a federal policy. You can't, you can't require work, but we already require work for everything. So I don't know how this is any different. This laws already exists. And unfortunately, people don't have the same uh, in intellectual knowledge as Ruth and I do, but hopefully those who are listening can spread the word. I went to vote yesterday, as a matter of fact, yes. and I listened to I listened to people as they were walking up to talk about the referendums. Nobody, people said, I thought there was two, I thought there was three, and that's unfortunate. And I, I didn't vote, but I just sat there for a good half an hour and 40 minutes to listen how people talked about this. So education is really needed, and one this particular one yes. is not necessary. People already work for the benefits. So talk to us specifically, I mean, so food shares, access to food assistance, right? A basic yes. human need so that you don't die, literally. And the policies we have set up in Wisconsin right now, you cannot access food share unless you're working or seeking employment. Is that correct? You, you must be seeking employment. Also, federal law is that you can only have it for three months every three years. So the only reason we've had it for extended periods is because of COVID, but that's been lifted by many states where that you no longer have that benefit if, you, if you've had it during COVID, but you're only allowed to have it for three months for every three years. And you must be seeking employment. You must check with your case manager to let them know you are seeking employment. Wait. You cannot get the benefit unless you're seeking employment. And what's the definition of seeking employment? There's so much complexity there what if you what if you're offered a job but the hours don't work because of child care what what if you can't access it what if there's you know challenges with the job it it causes you know it strong physical labor or or things that cause challenges to you physically how how do you even define what it is when you're searching for a job and if you've justifiably not accepted one Ruth, do you want to respond? I mean, <laughs> I can't. It's complicated. I, no, that's right. I mean, I think I think that I think Professor Pate is far more well versed in the details okay. of, okay. of the work requirements for food share. I know yeah. that. I mean, there was a really kind of heart running story on National Public Radio last night about a woman with children who's facing a hundred and fifty dollar a month cut to her food share benefits for her family 
because of this COVID expansion that Professor Pate mentioned, you know, yes, there the were some more generous benefits available to people for a while. Those are being cut back. So not only are some people becoming ineligible, those who remain eligible are also having to get by on, on much less. So it's not like we have a very generous program. No. And, and, and following what Ruth says, that if they can't meet the requirements, the, there is some discretion on the part of the street-level bureaucrat who is, who is deciding, but very little discretion. They have to be looking for work. If they can't meet the qualifications, um, they can't have the benefit. Now, they may get the benefit for their children only. There is a lot of policies where TANF and food stamps as well, you know, you can get benefits for your child only, but then also with those benefits comes a requirement you cooperate with the child support office so that she gets money from a father who owes child support to the state possibly, but also directly to the mother. So it gets to be very complicated, but the bottom line is that most people are together with each other who are of economic means that are similar. So if the father's poor, the mother's generally poor, they both are two poor people trying to raise children, um, but they have these government interventions sometimes that makes their life a little bit harder because of policy that's mm-hmm. currently in place. Makes them go after each other. And I mean, so here is the, I mean, you're going to hit me over the head and go, duh, when I ask this question. But so these policies, just to make it clear, are we leaving people hungry in the state of Wisconsin? Well, you know, you know, when you look at the discussion around that, people make choices. That's what someone will say. They made a choice. They made a choice to have a child. They made a choice to not work. And because meritocracy is such a major component of American way of life, we think that everybody should work hard and if they work hard. They'll get the benefits they need to take care of their family. And we need to have a real discussion about what meritocracy really is, because it's a myth for so many black and brown people. Um, but, you know, that's the people. It comes down to the choices people make even though those choices may be vested in historical trauma and discrimination and, and uh, oppression. But we don't look, we don't do another, enough critical analysis of people's current life situation. Um, so therefore, yes, some people may be going hungry mm-hmm. um, because they don't have those benefits. Uh, Professor Pate and uh, Ruth, we have uh, a caller joining us and wants to sort of dive a little deeper into how do you know if you qualify for housing and um, um, the impact of mental health and other issues. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. What are your thoughts? Thanks. Able-bodied is a problem. Able-minded must also be considered. Um, A historical case considering schizophrenia. Many years ago, I was a volunteer at a homeless shelter, and one fellow, I'll call him Al, not his real name, often, often asked Ron, do you have a job for me? Sadly, I very rarely did. Uh, uh, Another volunteer who had worked there many months or years before I started was a registered nurse working on the psychiatric ward of the local veterans hospital. So I respected his professional judgment when he said that our friend Al was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. When Al got a job at a fast food restaurant, he lasted only a few days because other workers and even in customers would get really concerned, even frightened when Al would carry on a conversation with somebody who no one else inside the building could either see nor hear. Uh, people with severe mental illnesses have a heck of a time holding down a job. Uh, Another point I just want to quickly throw in is that in the blood red Wow County surrounding Milwaukee, I'm sure there are thousands of vacant jobs right now, but they are miles beyond the nearest bus stop. And poor people who can't afford individual cars cannot get to those jobs. Thanks. Thanks for your uh, comments, Ron. And I I think, Professor Pate and Ruth, your your thoughts, I mean, I think this all goes to when we're voting on a referendum advisory though it is to sort of pass judgment on should able-bodied childless adults be required to look for work there's so much complexity to that as ron is pointing out with his examples yeah i think the thing about this referendum to understand though is that it is deliberately misleading you know it's asking people to say whether or not they believe something should happen that has already happened 
It is already the case that as to the absolute maximum federally allowable capacity, Wisconsin requires people to work to receive any kind of public assistance at all. So it's a done deal. It's not, you know, saying yes to this does nothing. It doesn't change policy in any way. It, it, it ratifies what's already going on, you know, but that's, I, I would argue maybe, not, you know, in our gerrymandered state, not necessarily the will of majority of people if they were fully informed, but, um, you know, it's mean spirited and it's meant to, to get people out who are, uh, as Professor Pate noted, like really focused on a racial issue here. This mm -hmm. is a, this is dog whistle racism. That's what it is. It's a, it's a way of getting racist people to vote and it's, you know, it's, it's ugly. And so I, I think it really shouldn't be taken that seriously. Although your like your specific question, I was just looking up because you asked how many people are hungry in Wisconsin, according to feeding America, it's one in 14 people, 415,400 are estimated to be facing hunger. Uh, so one in 14 Wisconsinites, one in eight are children. <laughs> so, so people are hungry and, you know, and, and people are facing all kinds of difficulties as a caller noted. And this referendum isn't about doing anything about that. This is a referendum about implying that people don't have actual needs, uh, that they're lazy, that they're getting away with something somehow. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's very political and it, and it sort of exacerbates the politics of resentment that our state has become famous for. And it's not very neighborly. So I, I really liked the Council on Churches, which is a big ecumenical organization of 21 different Christian traditions. Uh, put out a statement on it saying the oh, term welfare negative stereotypes of people, especially black people in poverty, supposedly unwilling to work. Taxpayer funded suggests that resentment at having to support government anti-poverty programs for those who are believed to fit the stereotype. And it ignores that many publicly funded benefits go to wealthier taxpayers. And that's really important. There's a really great new book out called um, Poverty by America that sort of totes up all of the benefits that go to especially middle class and upper middle class Americans. And, you know, how how outrageous it is that this outrage is ginned up about poor people getting too much because middle class people get a lot of government benefits from subsidized college to uh, mortgage interest deductions. Just all kinds of public programs are geared towards making life easier for people who already have a pretty reasonable standard of living. So um, I think this this referendum is misleading. It's political and it will have no real world effect except for making people um, sort of meaner. And Ruth, David, uh Professor Pate talked to us a little bit about what he's been hearing um, when he just sort of sat in the polls. And, uh, there's early voting going on. What have um, what have you been hearing about this referendum? And I'm worried the answer is nothing. I've heard very little about the welfare one. And I got calls from both of my college age daughters who are out of state and we're trying to fill out their absentee ballots to say, how should I vote? What is this about? Is what, is this? This? what do these referenda mean on the constitutional changes? I also anecdotally talked to a friend who is uh, helping nursing home residents to vote as a special voting assistant. And she said she's encountering a lot of people who don't know what to make of this language and don't know really what they think, how they think they should vote. And many of them, even though they're supporting Janet Protasiewicz, the Democratic supported candidate, are voting yes on these Republican sponsored referendum because they don't have a clear picture of what the actual changes are and what it means. So, Professor Pate, yeah, go ahead. The other thing is that so few people are using welfare benefits and welfare benefits are generally thought of as cash assistance. Millions and millions of dollars are being returned to the to the federal government every year because where Why? people aren't getting welfare, people aren't using all the child care benefits, which is tied to the TANF uh, um, disbursement that we get even in Wisconsin. So people's un un understanding or thinking that this is goo gobs of people, for lack of a, an intellectual word, <laughs> who were using welfare benefits, which is generally cash assistance. Are, People aren't using welfare benefits. Why is so uh, much being returned? Is it because they can't meet the strict requirements to qualify? You know, many scholars have looked at this in a variety of ways. It could be the requirements. It could be the amount of money. It's not worth all the... If you're getting only $150 in a state like Mississippi, or you're getting 600 and some dollars in Wisconsin, sometimes it's just not worth 
all of the requirements that go along with it. When also, we're, also they, it just may be better for them to do something else because even though those benefits could be very helpful, uh, sometimes the treatment and the questioning, if you've never been, if you've never been in questioned uh, or went through a, a TANF application process, I, I would ask everyone to do that. It's the most, it, it's very, dis you don't want the benefit based on how much of your personal life um, is being requested of you. And, and it's very humiliating to so many people when they're just trying to take care of their children and they're experiencing some economic insecurity. And we're being told that we're about the children, we want the children to do well, but we're really questioning their moral behavior as a parent uh, when they're doing the best they can and taking advantage of what they thought was available to them in the country they live in. So it's many people are many, and also many grants are just child only grants. The parent, we used to have AFDC, um, and first we had ADC, then we had AFDC, and now we're with TANF, and so many grants are just child, like the majority of grants are child-only grants, and the majority of money is not even going to cash assistance. It's going to other things that are helping, helping in quotations, people to get back to work, because the emphasis is on work. So what happens... Now I'm going to go maybe on a tangent a little bit. So, Professor Pate, all your knowledge and experience about the challenges and the failures sometimes of the uh, welfare systems in Wisconsin, what are things that we can be working on that should be the conversation public? Maybe, right, That's a, I'm asking you a question that's a whole other hour conversation. Yeah, that's a big conversation, and I, I would be ignorant to even try to answer all of that because it's not <laughs> simple. It's not simply a two or three statement. Um, I mean, of course, I think that we should have welfare as an entitlement because there are poor people who really need the benefit. Yes. Um, that that's, that's not politically savvy to say. Um, but there, I am engaged in a project where I am giving women money um, through a guaranteed income project. I think to look at whether yes. or not that makes a difference. And there's a lot of those all over the country. And many of us are documenting the, the outcomes of that. We just saw how a child tax credit made a big difference in people's lives. We just saw how all the stipends that were given, where many people in this country received welfare during COVID, it reduced poverty, it increased child outcomes, it made a big difference. So we have the data that shows what works. It's a matter of whether we have the moral and ethical position to move forward in that way. If we really want to have a conversation, we can have a conversation about welfare the referendum on the ballot does none of that and just moves us backwards into a, a dog whistle, uh, racist and inappropriate conversation that that in the end, when you vote for it, does nothing at all. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think, um, you know, coming out of covid, it's true that a lot of things have become clear in terms of people's needs, you know, to deal with to address the labor shortage. A lot of employers are realizing they need to help people with child care. There are yeah. all kinds of supports that people require in order to work. And we should be thinking that way. Well, it's been fabulous talking with you. Thank you both for joining us today. Professor David Pate, Ruth Conniff. Thank you for your insight, your experience and talking with us today. It's been great. Thanks for the invitation. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening again to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We'll see you again next week. Bye, everybody. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions.